1: You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 147, The Winter War, Part 5, The Battle of Suomosolmi. This week, a big thank you goes out to Steve, Jacqueline, and Jean for becoming members. Find out more over at historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members. One of the most important tools when I'm writing this podcast are maps. And let me tell you, finding detailed maps covering the Winter War can be challenging. When I started the podcast, I picked up a stack of atlases, partly because atlases are really cool, but also so that I could have maps to reference when making the podcast. Of these. Three atlases that I have covered the time period of the Winter War, and each of them only dedicate a page or two to that conflict, generally with one map covering the entirety of Finland, and then a zoom in on the Isthmus, and then a detailed map of a single battle. That battle is what we're going to be covering in this episode. It would occur not in southern Finland near that Isthmus, or even in the areas directly north of Lake Ladoga, but instead in the far north. 350 kilometers north of Lake Ladoka. The fighting in northern Finland would become some of the most well-known fighting around the world, as the stories of small Finnish units attacking large Soviet formations through their knowledge of the terrain and their woodcraft, made for exciting reading for readers all over the world. Among all of this fighting, one battle stands out, the Battle of Suomassalmi. There is a good reason for this, as it is one of the better examples from the war of what small, well-motivated, led, and organized units can do against a larger and less organized enemy when they perfectly utilize the terrain and geography to their advantage. The Finnish advantages in northern Finland would also include logistics. The fighting during the early weeks of the Winter War was occurring in the middle of December, and that is firmly within the Finnish winter, with temperatures down to minus 30 degrees Celsius. There were small ways in which the Finnish soldiers were supported during their actions in this kind of environment, like the usage of small stoves that could be transported by men to areas near the Finnish positions. This allowed for warm food to be cooked consistently near the front line, which was important not just for morale, and it was important for morale, but also because it provided better nutrition. Military rations for Cold weather environments are often different than normal rations due to the different needs of men heavily exerting themselves in the cold weather, and the Finnish army, for all of its equipment and material shortcomings, was just better at providing that nutrition for its men. On the other side, the Red Army units relied far more heavily on large field kitchens, which were often large, hard to move around, and slow to keep up with the frontline troops. It was hard for field kitchens to be kept near the front line, especially in instances where the Soviet soldiers moved away from the major roads in northern Finland, where roads in general were so rare. This resulted in far more missed hot meals for Soviet troops, which made fighting in the extreme cold more challenging. The situation around warming up food was just one instance where the Finnish army was obviously just better equipped for fighting in the extreme cold. Another example would be the fact that many Soviet units were not equipped with gun oil that worked when it was freezing, and at times, what they had would freeze their guns solid, which is exactly what you don't want in a combat situation. The Finns would instead mix their gun oil with gasoline, which prevented that freezing. The challenges faced by the Red Army then caused them to make further mistakes, which would cause further problems— particularly around the Soviet habit of creating large bonfires. When Soviet units were stuck in the Finnish wilderness, large bonfires were appealing for a variety of reasons. They provided warmth, which was nice, and also the feeling of safety during the night. Unfortunately for the Soviet soldiers involved, it also created picture-perfect opportunities for Finnish soldiers and units to attack the Soviets who would silhouette themselves against the fires. We've already seen an example of this last episode, when an early war Finnish counterattack was able to almost wipe out a Soviet unit that was caught unawares around its bonfire. These are just some of the advantages that the Finnish army had in fighting during the Winter War and in Finland. Another major one that would be a major contributing factor to their victory at Suomassalli, which we'll talk about today, and then other victories that would happen that we'll talk about in in later episodes— is their knowledge about the terrain. It was so crucial to the war that the Finns wanted to fight, and they were able to really take advantage of that knowledge. So speaking about the the Battle of Suomassalmi, as with so many famous battles of every war, the thing that the battle is named after, the village of Suomassalmi, was not a well-known landmark before the war. It was a village with a population of only around 4,000, and in terms of Finnish war plans, it was not really even considered to be an area where there would be serious fighting. It was far enough north that the Finnish leaders did not believe that it would face a Soviet threat, with the assumption being that they would focus all their troops to the south. This meant that when the war started, Suomasalmi was defended by border police units, which contained 58 men. But the Red Army was not going to leave Suomasalmi alone and instead they would make a major attempt to push through this part of Finland with the goal of moving all the way to the Swedish border. If that was accomplished, they would be able to cut a major rail link between Finland and Sweden, and they would also essentially cut Finland in two. This was considered important enough that two divisions, the 163rd and the 44th, would be dedicated to the operation. Now one aspect of operations in northern Finland— which is important to how the Battle of Suomassalmi will develop, is that large units of men were entirely road-bound, and they had to stick to the roads, and they were often forced to split into smaller units to take different roads because the roads were too small. This meant that depending on the size and quality of the road, and the size of the ultimate objective, different regiments of Soviet troops might be sent down different roads that all converged in a similar area around the objective. This is important to the development of the Battle of Suomussalmi because it made it very challenging for the Red Army officers to really capitalize on their massive numerical advantage. This area of Finland was far too wooded for the kind of massive flanking maneuvers that would be seen in many other Second World War battlefields, where numbers and mobility were so powerful. Instead, small units of Finnish soldiers and a well-built roadblock could hold up the Soviet advance for hours or even days. The 58 men in Suomassalmi would receive reinforcements before they were tasked with actually trying to execute one of these roadblocks and dealing with the large Red Army force advancing in their direction. Because as soon as the Soviets crossed the border, it was clear that Suomassalmi was one of the areas in desperate need of reinforcement. Again, the, the Finns could know this because of the limited roads, so if the Soviets are advancing down a specific road, you knew where they were going to end up eventually. The first reinforcements to arrive would be a few companies of troops that would be stationed in far northern Finland. They were just available and could get there the quickest. They would be able to move on to some roads to slow the Soviet advance and to allow time for more units to arrive. With the Red Army completely bound to the roads, these delays would be accomplished. And in fact, they would even just completely stop one Soviet regiment that was moving towards the village of Piranka. While some of the smaller Soviet thrusts could be stalled out by the small units available in northern Finland, if there was any hope of stopping the major Soviet push by the 163rd Division, which was in front of the 44th, towards Suomassalmi, more manpower would be required. With this requirement in mind, Mannerheim would order Infantry Regiment 27 to move north. The 27th was commanded by Colonel Halmar Silovoso, a World War I veteran of the Finnish Jaeger Battalion, which had fought for Germany against Russia during the First World War. Silosfuo's regiment had some real challenges in front of it. It did not have any heavy weapons, it did not possess a single anti-tank gun, and it was not even fully equipped with basic items like tents. But the 27th had one major advantage, which would over the course of the next few weeks prove to be decisive. Most of its troops were from small Finnish villages, just like Suomassalmi. This meant that they had skis, and they knew how to use them, and they were at home in the Finnish forests, which would prove to be an essential quality in the actions that would follow. Before the 27th could arrive, the Soviets would take control of Suomassalmi. And because of this, Selasvo would set up his headquarters in the village of Hernisalmi, to the southwest of Suomassalmi. On December 9th, the Soviet troops would continue their advance down the road that linked the two villages together, only to very rapidly run into a solid wall of Finnish machine gun fire. This was a surprise, and an unwelcome one, to the Red Army commanders. At this point, a rumor would circulate around the Finnish forces that the 27th was just the first regiment of an entire Finnish division which was coming north to push back the Soviet advance. This rumor was completely false. But it was not denied by Salasvuo, because he knew that it would be great for his men's morale if, you know, maybe they believed there was an entire division on the way. One of the major morale issues for the small units of Finnish defenders in northern Finland was the feeling that they were simply forgotten. They were always fighting much larger Soviet units with very little communication with outside forces. And so it was easy to just feel like they were alone and forgotten and fighting a hopeless fight. Combating this feeling was an important part of being an effective Finnish officer during these early phases of the Winter War. And Solasvuo would do it partially by just letting the rumors of more reinforcements kind of make the rounds. eBay Motors is here for the ride. or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
0: Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.
1: While the Finns were setting up their roadblocks to halt further Soviet advances, they were also planning for more proactive operations. These would primarily be in the form of road-cutting operations, which were operations that perfectly took advantage of the strengths of Finnish units while preying on the weaknesses of the Red Army units that they were facing. Road-cutting operations were exactly what they sound like, operations designed to sever road connections between Soviet units by taking over parts of the road. To describe how one of these operations were structured, here is a nice long quote from A Frozen Hell, the Russo-Finnish Winter War of 1939-1940 by William Trotter, describing how these operations were, in general, structured. Quote, The combat team selected to make the actual cut would move into pre-selected assembly areas just beyond reach of the enemy's reconnaissance patrols. Finnish patrols, meanwhile, had already established the most concealed routes to approach the road from the assembly area, and secured them by positioning pickets of ski troopers on the flanks. Each combat team made its approach according to a timetable that allowed the commander on the spot to gauge the pace so that his men would not arrive at their jumping-off point too tired to do the job. At the final assembly point, usually within earshot of the road, heavy winter garb was discarded and left under guard, along with the other heavy equipment. The assault teams were only lightweight snowsheets and carried as much firepower as possible. Sumis, uh, lugers, grenades, and satchel charges. Speed and shock were the ingredients of a successful road-cutting attack, while the assault team was deploying, scouts would creep as close as possible to the point of impact and would bring back last-minute coordinates for the mortars and Maxim guns, which would put down suppressive fire on either side of the raiding party. At the signal, a sharp, short barrage of mortar and machine gun fire would crash into the attended point of contact. After a few moments, the supporting fire would be shifted 100 meters or so to the right and left of that point, in effect sealing off a narrow corridor across the road. That was the moment to launch the assault." Quote. When successful, these operations could catch the Soviet units completely off guard and leave them in a situation where the best thing that they could do against the Finns was to coordinate attacks on both sides of the captured piece of road but the lack of radios within the Red Army units made it difficult to actually achieve the necessary levels of coordination. Also, when successful, these road-cutting operations allowed much smaller Finnish units to neutralize much larger units of Soviet troops. For example, in one of these early operations, just 350 men were able to cut the road that supported an entire Soviet division, making it impossible for them to continue their advance to lack of supplies, and forcing them to shift their effort to dealing with the small number of Finnish forces to their rear. Along with the first of these road-cutting operations, Salasvuo would also order a more traditional assault against some Soviet positions near a village, but as was often the case, these were not successful. But more help would arrive in mid-December when 8 artillery guns and then a few anti-tank guns would arrive taking Finnish heavy firepower from basically nothing to at least something in this area of the front. This allowed the Soviet forces to be brought under Finnish firepower for the first time, adding to their misery in the pockets that had developed through the road-cutting operations. By this point, the Finns had successfully cut off the entire Soviet 163rd Division, with one major roadblock separating it from the Soviet 44th Division, and then the 163rd itself was cut into several smaller pockets along various roads in the area. The biggest threat to the growing possibility of a major Finnish victory was the possibility of the 44th Division coming to the rescue of the 163rd. To prevent this from happening, several different efforts were started. The first was an effort to accelerate the tightening of the pockets of of the 163rd Division, and another was to halt the advance of the 44th. The most important actions were against the 44th, and several small attacks were launched against the forward units of that division. These attacks were not designed to necessarily destroy these units, but instead simply to slow their advance, and they were quite successful in this. General Vinogradov, the commander of the 44th, became concerned that he was moving his men into a trap and that they would get cut off, just like the 163rd, if they kept advancing, so he stopped the advance. This is one of those command decisions that receives criticism, but it's very easy to understand how the officer, at the point of the decision, arrived at the decision that he did. Because it's exactly what would have happened to the 44th if it kept advancing. But unfortunately for the men of the 44th Division... Just halting their advance would not save them. But we'll come back to that in just a little bit. First, let's turn back to the destruction of the 163rd. By December 23rd, more units arrived in the area in the form of the 64th Finnish Infantry Regiment, along with a special ski battalion and another independent battalion of infantry. This allowed the attacks on the 163rd to be greatly accelerated. This was critical to the continuation and expansion of Finnish efforts in this area, Because one of the challenges of the road cutting operations is that once the road was cut, the troops that had cut the road had to stay on the road to defend the roadblocks. And so the more little pockets of the 163rd that was sort of created by, by cutting them off from others, the greater number of Finnish troops that were committed to these kind of static defense roles, which made it more difficult to continue the raids and attacks against the remaining pockets, which were so important to kind of keeping them off balance. The 163rd Division was not content to just sit on its hands and let itself be destroyed due to the Finnish attacks and the slow dwindling of supplies, and instead there were several concerted efforts to push through the Finnish roadblocks and push back to the east to link up with the 44th Division. These attacks, culminating in efforts on the 25th of December, would be unsuccessful. And would represent the moment where the defense of the 163rd Division transitioned into a state where it was just a matter of time before all of the pockets were either destroyed or forced to surrender. Salosvuo so sensed this shift and that the 163rd was running out of ammunition, and moved over to a general counterattack on the 27th of December. During this attack, the Finnish forces were able to roll up many of the Soviet positions on the road leading to Suomussalmi. The troops within Suomisalmi continued a stout defense for like another day, but time was obviously running out. By the 28th, they were either killed or forced to surrender. By the 29th, the last sizable Soviet pocket, which contained a single regiment, launched the last serious breakout attempt of any unit of the 163rd Division, but it was also defeated. By the 30th, the final pocket of Soviet troops was eliminated. An entire Soviet division had ceased to exist, but even before the final days of the 163rd Division, Finnish focus had shifted to the 44th with the hope of a similar result. After the advance of the 44th had been stopped by the attacks in mid-December that we just discussed, they had been largely immobilized and did not try to move to help the units of the 163rd that were being destroyed on the roads to their west But they also did not just retreat back to the east. They just kind of hung out there. They did not know it, but they were now the primary target of the Finnish troops who planned to use the same tactics once again. The goal was to take the entire length of the 44th Division, which was occupying about 30 kilometers of a road, and cut it into smaller pieces, just like it happened to the other division. The first major attack was designed to separate the strongest portion of the 44th the first several kilometers of its length, from the rest, an operation which would be launched by a battalion of troops from the 27th Regiment on January 1st. The attack would be launched in the dead of night, just after midnight, when the Russian sentries, which were positioned far too close to the road, were killed and the Finnish troops attacked the road. In this case, the Finnish unit had made a mistake, a real mistake, And they'd gotten confused, which didn't happen very often in this type of attack, because they had attacked the wrong area of the road. They were off by a little less than 500 meters. But it meant that when they attacked, the area of road that they took control of was the home of a Soviet artillery battalion. This is what Bob Ross would call a happy accident, because it allowed for the neutralization of some Soviet artillery completely by accident which was fantastic for the future Finnish prospects in this attack. The Finnish units were able to quickly take control of the road and start throwing up defenses against the inevitable Soviet counterattacks. Both the Finns and the Soviets knew that the Finnish roadblocks were at their weakest just after they were created, before men and equipment could be moved onto the road and defenses strengthened. This makes a lot of sense. With that in mind, a risk was taken and both the anti-tank guns available in this area of the front were sent forward with the Finnish unit that made this attack. This was a major risk. These were the only two Beauforts anti-tank guns that the Finns had, and if they were lost, they were gone, and there would be no replacements. But this risk would pay off, because when the expected Soviet attack was launched, the two guns disabled seven tanks in a matter of minutes, with the added benefit that those disabled tanks added to the strength of the roadblock because they themselves blocked the road. As soon as the Soviet counterattack was defeated, the units on the roadblock settled into a routine. The first part of that routine was for hot meals to be brought forward on sleds, and heated tents were set up on a nearby ridge to allow for troop rotations from the roadblock to the heated tents and back. I'm not Finnish. I'm not a soldier. I've never fought a battle in the Finnish winter. But when I try to think about what they would be like—and it's hard—I just think about how awesome it would be to get a hot meal and get some hours in a heated tent. That sounds like heaven. The rotation that would be set up would be different based on what the Finnish soldier was doing, but for units that were actively patrolling and launching raids against the Soviet positions, they were on a rotation where they would patrol for two hours get 2 hours to rest in heated tents and dugouts, then patrol for another 2 hours, then they would rest for 4 hours, which would often include a hot meal. It was hard work, but knowing that there was a warm rest and a hot meal at the end of it must have been a major boost to morale. While they were patrolling, they would often launch small raids against the trapped Soviet units just to kind of keep them off balance with the goal of slowly destroying their ability to fight and support the soldiers within the pockets. Targets were selected carefully to have the greatest effect. Command posts, ammunition storage dumps, and field kitchens. One of the interesting features of this fighting is that you can often find field kitchens listed alongside tanks in battle reports as targets worth calling out as being destroyed, which I think says everything that needs to be said about their importance. The Soviet experience on the receiving end of these raids, day after day, was a frightening one, with Finnish ski troops seeming to appear from anywhere, attack and then leave, before a real reaction could be organized. Here is a regimental commander of the 44th Division discussing his experience. Quote, But Finns, we couldn't see anywhere. And believe it or not, the first Finns that I personally saw were the two that took me as prisoner after my regiment was destroyed. We couldn't see them anywhere, yet they were all over the place. If anybody left the campsite, he met with certain death. When we set our sentries to take their positions around the camp, we knew that within minutes they would be dead with a bullet in their forehead or the throat slashed with a dagger. This invisible death was lurking from every direction. It was sheer madness. Hundreds, even thousands of my men were slaughtered." Quote. The complete control that the Finns had of the woods around the roads made any real Soviet action impossible. Another attempt would be made on January 2nd to storm the roadblocks created along the road, but they were stopped not just by fire from the roadblocks, but also by murderous flanking fire from both sides of the road from the forests. Every day that the roadblock survived, it got stronger, and by January 6th, as the ability of the trapped units to fight was decreasing, the roadblock was protected by more and more troops, they'd been able to put mines on the road, they'd fortified their positions. Like At that point, there was no breaking out. By January 6th, also, organized Soviet resistance was essentially over, and a general retreat was ordered. And the last resistance from any units was over by the 8th. A second Soviet division had been almost entirely destroyed on the roads of northern Finland. Around 27,000 Soviet soldiers from the two divisions had been killed, either by Finnish actions or by the elements. 43 tanks and 270 other vehicles were destroyed. Many vehicles, 48 artillery guns, 300 machine guns, and even a few tanks were captured by the Finnish troops, massively increasing their capabilities. It only cost the Finns around 900 dead and 1,800 wounded. The Battle of Suomassalmi was a truly stunning victory. By far the most incredible event of the Winter War. And the story of the battle would make its way into newspapers all over the world. Which is understandable. A few regiments of Finnish troops destroying two Soviet divisions. Amazing. There would be other successes on other areas of the front, but this would be the crowning achievement of Finnish arms. These successes would also bring with it some problems that would not be felt until later. Because when combined with the successful Finnish actions that we'll discuss next episode, it would begin to move the Red Army towards changes. Changes that would turn it into the Red Army that would defeat the Finns in the months that followed.